1994, in the early morning hours of a summer day, all across Los Angeles, calls began coming in to the 911 operators. And those calls came in and people were urgently pleading with them saying, there are strange clouds forming over the city. And others called in and even claimed there are UFOs. I see a UFO right now in the sky and it's coming to attack the city. And, and they were wondering what is going on. Well, well here, here's why, these, why all across LA people were calling in with these, these strange claims. See, that morning there had been a 6.7 magnitude earthquake, or 4.7, sorry, 6.7, that flat in the city. 4.7 magnitude earthquake that had struck the city, causing the power grid to go completely out. And so what happened was people who had for years only looked up into the sky and seen light pollution looked up into the sky and saw this. They looked up and for the first time what they thought were strange clouds, what they thought were UFOs, was actually the Milky Way. Why do I share that with you? Because today what we're going to see is Jesus is going to make known to us his desire for us to know his presence in our lives. For us to know God's presence, that when we look around, when we discern, we sense, we can, in a spiritual sense, see him there. But what John 7, this chapter, captures is what it is that pollutes our ability to be able to see God's presence in our life. See, what Scripture again and again comes back to is that we are made for the presence of God. It's not just about the forgiveness of sins and the absence of sin in our lives, but it's actually about also then knowing the presence of God in our lives. As Augustine, a church father said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God's presence. This morning, uh, when the lightning storm came through, my three-year-old daughter woke up screaming. And, and so I went in there. Now, here's what I didn't do when she, was, when she was yelling out for me. I didn't just go, it's okay, go back to bed, right? If you don't know, that doesn't work. Pro tip, right? Instead, what did I do? When she cries out, I, I went into her room. I held her. See, in the midst of the ups and downs of life, the storms of life, the difficulties of life, the dark hours of life, even in the joys of life, what we ultimately long for is that presence of our Father. And so that's what Jesus is going to help us see today. What is it that pollutes our ability to see his presence? And then how do we walk in his presence. So we're going to look at first the presence we long for, then we're going to look at what pollutes our ability to see God's presence, and then third, how to walk in God's unpolluted presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we desire to know you. Lord, we say every week we want to know, love, and obey Jesus, and yet we can go throughout our lives Lord, always just the sense that you're distant, that you're cold. So, Lord, help us see today that your desire is to draw near to us, to make a home with us, to be present, and for us to walk no matter what it is in the wilderness of life, to know you are there and to sense your presence. Would you give us that gift this morning, Spirit, the gift of being able to see you, of steps to take, of what that might look like in each of our lives. Spirit, would you open our eyes? Would you just even tell us that that craving, that yearning that we have for your presence, something we're made for and something that you've brought to grace us with. Would you do this work in Jesus' name? Amen. 
Well, this middle portion of John's gospel, John 7, follows, and these, these chapters around it actually follow uh, kind of the calendar year for the Jewish feast. And so what we just saw in chapter 6 was the Passover feast. And, and what we saw in the Passover feast, that this was a feast in which God, we could sum it up, and it's a time when God recounted to his people how it is that he is, provides a sufficient sacrifice for their sins, how he can give them life and freedom from death caused by sin. And then now in chapter 7 through 9, we'll be at the feast of, as it says here, the Feast of Booths. Another term for that that it's, it's more commonly called is the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the highest feasts of the year. So verse 2, just to orient us here, it says, now the Feast of the, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So it opens up with this context where John's highlighting, hey, you have to understand the context in which this entire scene is playing out because it matters. It matters. The Feast of Tabernacles was actually the largest annual gathering of Jews in Jerusalem. Even just the surrounding culture would come for this large feast. And, and what they would do is they were recounting, and the reason why I like to use the term tabernacle instead of booths, is because it's recounting the time that Israel journeyed after the Passover, after escaping from Egypt, how they journeyed through the wilderness for 40 years. And as they journeyed in the wilderness for 40 years, the one thing that they longed for, the one thing that they craved was God's presence. And, and the way God provided his presence was through a, a tabernacle, a temporary dwelling tent where God was present in that tent and wherever God went, that's where the people would migrate. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is literally is an eight-day feast that would reenact their time in the wilderness. So what they would do is they would go out outside the city of Jerusalem, and they would build these kind of ramshackle little tents, or you could call them booths, these little tabernacles. And they would, they would go into these tabernacles, and they would live there throughout the day. And so they would reenact, and they would read Scripture, and they'd remember that time, and they were literally reenacting it. And, it. and during that time, it would remind them of several things from those 40 years in the wilderness. First, it reminded them that this world is a journey in the wilderness, that, that, that if we are to follow God, if we're to know God, if we're to have life with Him, an eternal life with Him, then it puts in perspective this life, that this life is actually just a journey in the wilderness. It's not our ultimate home. But then also the feeble tense reminded them of how vulnerable we are in this life, how, how dependent we are on God. In other words, you can say that God is our ultimate refuge, that nothing in this world, no amount of money, no amount of, uh, amount of a fortress that we could be in, there's nothing more than God that could be our refuge. Nothing in this world could provide his refuge. And then third, that the rituals that they would undergo every day would actually remind them of God's promise specifically to be present with his people. That yes, he's made atonement for their sins at the Passover, but now God will be present with his people. And what they would do is each day they would march around, they would march up to the temple and they'd offer a sacrifice to remind them of God's provision. And then what they would do is they would, they would begin to march in the crowds around the altar and they would go around once and they would cry out, they would cry out, God save us. Save us, God. And it was reenacting, God, you've, you've made provision for our sins, but God, now we're in this wilderness, and God, would you save us? God, would you draw near? Would you be present with us? Would you not abandon us? It was a cry in the wilderness of life. You've removed the penalty for sin, but what about this presence of sin? What about when it seems you're so distant? God, draw near. Come to your people. And it's a perfect picture of what comes next after we decide to follow Jesus. 
That's why it's included here. This is why Jesus goes to this feast. Because the question is, in the long journey of life, we come to Christ, we know him, and then what comes next? In fact, this scene, when it says at the beginning of chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, after this, after this. What's it referring to, after this? Because chapter 6 is about six months before chapter 7. So there's a gap in time here. And so what has just happened at the end of chapter 6, as we looked at last week, was the disciples have decided to follow Jesus. They heard a hard saying, and then a bunch of the crowds left, and the disciples go, well, who else could we go to? We will follow you. You have the words of eternal life. And so the disciples have just decided to follow Jesus. And perhaps you have made a decision, okay, now I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to find the life in him. I'm going to do this whole Christian thing. But then as you begin living life, then the question is, what comes next? I know about your sacrifice for sins. I know about forgiveness. I know about all these aspects. But, but then you come to this place of now I'm trying to go about my life and I'm going through that diagnosis. I'm going through that bad news. I'm going through these joys. I'm going through these valleys. I'm going through all these seasons of life. I'm going through a breakup. I'm trying to plan my career. I'm changing diapers, right? I'm making dinner, whatever it may be. In the ordinary things of life, you're going through life and the whole time your soul, you just sense you're crying out, but God, what's, what's next? Now, what's next is God's presence and desiring it. That's the picture in the Bible from beginning to end. From beginning to end in Genesis 3, you have this picture of God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, and it's this picture of what we were made for. It's not just kind of some myth that's back there, some historical legend, but it's capturing the reality that God designed us for, made in his image, which means we have the unique capacity to relate to God, to, to know God to worship God, to take the raw materials of creation and cultivate them for his glory. This, this is what we were created for. And what's happening here and now in Jesus, the gospel, the message is that it's not just about, yes, your sin must be dealt with, but also in Jesus, God is bringing his presence so you would walk with him, just as God walked with humanity in the garden. So it's not a bug that you, that you desire God's presence. It's a feature of being created in his image. And John is at pains again and again to communicate in his gospel that Christianity promises not just the absence of sin, but the presence of God. And that's why every day our soul cries out, Lord, save me, come to me. I need you, Lord. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel that? But then when we look to him, and we try to see him, and we try to sense his presence, it seems obscured. It seems polluted. Like looking up into the sky and all you can see is just the light pollution. How do we break through when how does heaven come down? How do we have that sense of God's presence? What we're going to look at next is what are the things, before we talk about how, what are some of the things that actually pollute our ability? What gets in the way? What pollutes God's presence and our ability to see it? The, the chapter starts right after this in, chapter, in verse 3 with Jesus' biological brothers pressuring him to make some noise at the feast. Right? We read that in the scripture reading. The brothers come to him in verse 3, and they said to him. Now, by the way, I should highlight here, this isn't like the Southern baptist like these are Jesus' brothers in Christ, right? Like, no, these are, these are Jesus' biological brothers. So these are like his half-brothers, and so they grew up with him. And so here's the thing. Jesus' biological brothers, they come to him, and they, they said, leave here and go up to Judea. They know that the feast is coming, so your disciples may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret, but he, if he seeks to be known openly... 
if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, what, what, are, what are they doing there? What they're, what they're doing and why it's important that this whole scene starts with this is that they, it's, it's setting the stage for the fact that Jesus' brothers, who are his biological brothers, they only can see when they look at Jesus that he's just merely a man. Think about it. This is God in flesh. They've lived with him. They're right there. And all they can see in him is this biological reality. All they can see is a man. And so they completely miss Jesus. So while, they, of course, they could see Jesus physically, they can't see who he is. Now, one of the things that's interesting throughout this chapter that I won't, it, it'll be kind of like a sub-theme throughout as I'm preaching, but I won't really come back to it a ton, but this whole chapter takes love. So there's two levels of discourse. Stay with me here, okay? Two levels of discourse throughout this narrative. What happens is on one level of discourse, you have this world. You have what's physical. You have, as the disciples, or as his brothers say, go up to in public, make yourself known, do the physical things. But then on another level of discourse that's throughout this entire thing is this level of the spiritual, this level of the hidden, this level of the secret. And all Jesus' brothers can see here is this level. All they can see is the worldly reality in Jesus So what happens, and it's setting the stage for this whole dynamic throughout this chapter. Jesus won't go up. He says, I won't, I don't want to muddle my message. And so in verse uh, eight, he says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So you go, okay, chapter's over, right? No, then verse, verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Jesus is being tricksy, right? Some of you are like, wait, Jesus said he wouldn't go up. Then he went up. Did Jesus lie? Oh, right. <laughs> Whatever is bad. But no, no. Wait, here's what it's saying. It's saying Jesus didn't go up in the way they wanted him to. That's key. That's, that, that's the, the, the crutch of that, why it captures you there. Wait, Jesus said you won't go up, but you did go up. And he's saying, because I didn't go up in the way they wanted me to. And that's key. They wanted me to go up with pomp and circumstance. They wanted me to go up like a politician. They wanted me to go public like an emperor. They wanted me to just be this this big personality, this celebrity, and it would just draw people of everything that I am and my fame and my my coolness, whatever it is. And that's what would actually draw people. And Jesus says, I don't want to confuse my message because what he captures, what John captures next in the interactions with the people when Jesus goes up in secret captures the very reason why Jesus didn't want to muddle his message. Because as he begins going about in the crowds, in verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Where is he? You can imagine Jesus is is in the crowd. Now, we've all seen, you know, like the picture of Jesus. You're like, I would recognize Jesus, right? No, well, they, they, by the way, we don't know if Jesus would look like that. Anyways, that's all. That's, anyways. Uh, (laughs) Walked right into that. Uh, Jesus, they could, of course, see him as another man just like his brothers. But they couldn't see who he is. They could, it's like you can see Los Angeles, but you can't see that heaven is actually right there. And so the people are going, where is he? Where, where is he? Now, you could read this as merely a historical kind of recording of what happened, right? Okay, here's the events, and here's how just the Bible goes along, telling the historical events of what happened, so just moving on. But here's the thing. There's a very interesting reason why that detail is included here in the narrative. See, throughout the the Feast of Tabernacles, every single day when the Jews gathered, they would actually read from different Old Testament passages. One of those key passages they would read again and again and again was from Joel 2. 
Now, we're going to come back to the end of Joel 2 because Joel 2 is going to give this prophecy of how God will dwell with his people. One day, how he will save them and this fullness of his kingdom and the reality of who he is will come into the world. But here's the thing. At the very beginning of that passage, a few verses earlier, it describes the state of God's people when God comes. This is what it says in Joel 2. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, so imagine the people are gathering around the altar during the feast, and they're hearing, so they're literally around the altar, and then they hear, they're hearing this read, and they, they're around the altar, and they let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The irony here is that the people are all around the very Son of God who's standing next to them, and they're crying out, save us, O God, come to us, O God, and they're right beside them. They're saying, where is he? And the reason why they can't see him is because he's not just a him, he's not just a human, he is God. Now, that's not the only irony there. There's more, folks, right? Here's the other level. They're at, again, the Feast of Tabernacles when they're wondering, where is God? How will he draw near to us? The whole point is to reenact how God would dwell with them and be present with them. And here's the thing. John had opened up his gospel with a very specific phrase, a famous one that many of you, even if you haven't been around church a lot, have heard before. And he says this in John 1.14. He said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, why is that ironic? Why is that an interesting verse to bring in here. Because the very same Greek word that is the word for dwelt, that Jesus dwells with you, it's the only other time the exact same word is used, which is word used for the word booze or tabernacle. It's the Greek word skene. And what it's saying there is in the midst of what John has literally opened up his gospel with is Jesus not only draws near to you. When we think of he dwells with you, what not what he says there is literally he tabernacles with you. And so in other words, the people are gathered, just get the idea, if you're original first century reader of this text, this would have been exploding with irony because you would have known they're gathering around, they're crying out, where is our God? Where is our God in the the prophetic literature? Then you're in a crowd saying, where is he? Where is he? And they're at this festival, the, the feast of dwelling, the feast of tabernacles. And here's the thing, the whole time they're looking for their God, the whole time they're crying out, save us. The whole time they're saying, God, will you come into our trouble? The whole time he's right there. And they can't see him. They can't discern him. And you can imagine, I mean, that's the thing. It's not just they couldn't see the heavens. The very heavens came down and they can't see him and recognize him. The one who created the Milky Way, the one who hung the stars, and he's there. And they can't discern him, even though it's their cry. And often this is true of us, isn't it? Our lives, we cry out, God, where are you? Where are you, God? And we go about our days like, I just, I can't find you. And so what this text does is then it recounts several interactions that unpack how, why it is often that we don't discern God's presence in our life. What gets in the way of it? What pollutes it? What obscures it? What makes it? What blocks it? So these are the three interactions and the three things. The first, so think about these as we're going through them. The first is the word of God is polluted as the word of man. Jesus immediately then heads to the temple. I can imagine Jesus, imagine Jesus standing there with the people are going, where is he? Where is he? And you can imagine almost tears welling up in his eyes. 
It's almost a picture because we so often think God, God's just distant, and you can imagine God is right there, and like the, the tear, the sadness, the mourning, like I'm here. It reminds me, I know this is going to be a little bit, some of you won't know what I'm referencing, but the, the movie Interstellar, there's a scene where like Bradley Cooper at the end is like trying to get to his daughter, and he's in this other dimension, he's traveled through time, she's like on the other side of the wall, and he just like can't connect And sometimes it just feels like there's just this wall, like he's in a different dimension, and it's just like can't connect. What is it that obscures it? Because I imagine then Jesus in verse 13, then he goes, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke of him. You can imagine Jesus looks up at the temple, and those tears begin to turn to tears of, of almost wrath. He says, I see what's polluting. And he heads to the temple. And so he gets to the temple, and the first thing that pollutes is we, uh, we pollute the word of God. It's polluted as the word of man. Here's what I mean. Jesus heads to the temple and begins teaching from Old Testament text. Imagine he goes into the temple. They would have had the, the Hebrew text open, or the Greek translations of it, open in the temple, and they would have been teaching from it. And so they've gone to the next in the lectionary and been reading it. And these Old Testament texts would have prophesied when God would come and be present with his people. And Jesus gets up, and he just goes up to it, and he begins teaching. He begins explaining how God's going to fulfill this reality. Now, so let's just hit it in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple. So again, it's in the middle of the teachings, and he began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They're marveling at him. How is it? What, how, where did this man get this learning? Where, where is this coming from? Now, the people are blown away, but the response gives a hint to what it is that's blocking their ability to see Jesus. Again, they ask, where are you getting this teaching? Where did you learn this stuff? Why is that important? Because the people in the midst of it seem to be assuming when they're hearing the Old Testament, the reason why they're amazed. Elsewhere in Scripture, when Jesus teaches, they will say that the, the disciples' hearts were burning within them when he was teaching from the Old Testament. Why is it that in these moments when Jesus speaks that, that people come alive and they marvel and it's just like the heavens break open with truth and this voice pours forth? Why is it? Because most likely the Jews have been taught by the religious leaders just the view, the Old Testament, just the view God's word as just some kind of a record of Israel's religious history. Like it, the Bible had just become this book that recorded all of the events. And so sure, the people would be like, yeah, God spoke, God did things. There were all these events, they're recounted, they're recorded, but it's just really a work of history. But now, when we think about it, we just read it as kind of some story in the past, but they never hear the word of God coming to them in the present and God speaking to them. They misunderstand the nature of the word of God as just some record, not as God's living word spoken to them. And this is why Jesus, when he speaks, because it's not just some record, but in fact, it's actually Jesus. He is God, and he's speaking. And so as he's speaking, they're, they're getting the sense of God speaking to me now. And here's the thing. Often we make the Bible some historical artifact or just some kind of like work of anthropology, and it's just some record. And so we, we, we just glean it for data points and whatnot. And the problem is we are not able to hear the voice of God because here's the thing. God's word is written to you to speak to you. And one of the ways that God most fundamentally draws near to us is through speaking, hearing his voice. When I go into Clara's room and I, and I, and I hug her, then what do I say? I say things like, like, Daddy's here, Papa. I say, Papa, Papa's here. Right? I'm not going anywhere. I'll be with you. It's okay. And there's just something in our life where we need our Father. We need to hear his voice. 
And that's we know his presence by his voice. But what happens when we turn the Bible just into a religious relic, just a record, just another textbook, just another, you know, source of a uh, religious claim or idea or system? I, I don't have time to unpack the rest of this, this interaction here down through verse 24, but when they interact with him, when, when they begin interacting with Jesus, they can't hear God's word. They can't sense that this is God present with us because what happens when we make God's word just merely a man-made thing is here's the thing. If it's a man-made thing, then it can be up to whatever man-made interpretation you want. You can build whatever system on top of it. You can distort it. And it's not only you can't hear the voice of God, but once you can't hear the voice of God in Scripture, then you also aren't attuned to the heart of God. And so what they do, what's so ironic is they're arguing over the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath and, and all this stuff because they've just made about the human author Moses and they're just thinking about it as just this system of rules and the system of rituals. And while those things have their place, at the end of the day, they're meant to bring us to the presence of God. And the whole point of the Sabbath is what? To rest from your work and just rest in the presence of God. And so he goes, I healed on the Sabbath back in chapter five. I brought life and I'm drawing near to you. And in the midst of it, you reject it. You can't see it because you've made this word of God speaking. You've just made it this thing that you could twist and you could use. And so you can't judge me with right judgment. You judge me, which by the way is a word for righteousness. Right. Same word, dikaisune in the Greek. You can't judge righteously. You're not attuned to the heart of God and so you can't see. Anthem, do you do you regularly go to God's word? Do you just kind of analyze it? Or do you ask God to speak? Do you hear God's promises? One of, I've shared this before, and it kind of goes with the sky illustration, but I remember I was really convicted back in, when I was training to become a pastor. I'm kind of academically inclined, and so this can be a big problem for me. And I remember at one point this vision got, not, you know, vision, but God just kind of impressed upon me. This idea that he's like, you're, you love tracing out the constellations. Like, you can look up at the sky, you can study my word, you can trace the kind, con- this goes with this and then this, and it's fulfilled like this, and everyone's like, oh, wow, where do you get this teaching? And he says, in the whole time, you actually miss the one who actually put those stars there. You miss the worship, you miss the wonder, you miss me pouring forth speech making myself known and promises to you. You're not hearing my voice. When we make God's word a man-made thing, it pollutes our ability to hear God's word. Second thing, then, the interaction. The work of God is polluted as a work of man. Verses 27 through 29. But we know, this is the people then a little bit later, we know that where this man comes from and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me. You know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. See, what Jesus is saying here is, I have a heavenly origin with a heavenly goal. I have a heavenly origin. I'm from the Father, and that heavenly goal is to bring you to the Father. My whole reason for entering this world is so that you might know life with him. I want you to know him. That's so why I've given my life for you. But oftentimes what we do is we, we, we kind of begin to see that Jesus' goal is the whole, the whole thing isn't really about knowing God, but in, in fact, it's, it's, it's more something 
supposed to be more extraordinary. Because here's the thing, Jesus, in the very ordinary moments of life, wants to bring us to his father. And, and, and you can imagine the people go, we don't know where he's from, which is interesting because they later, they know he's from Nazareth, but then they, they go in the prophecies, they know he's supposed to be from Bethlehem, and they know this, but it's interesting the, word, the way the text is phrased because it's almost as if they're like expecting this extraordinary, I don't know where he'd be from. So you can imagine you'd ask him, and they'd be like, I don't know, uh, like be from Rome, right? The emperor of Rome, that he come from the far east, like Genghis Khan, right? That's anachronistic, Genghis Khan's later. But they're like bringing him in, like right, they're imagining this amazing, almost like heaven comes at this extraordinary breaking in, the celebrity, right? The, the, the great event. And what happens is they're looking for Jesus in that and they can't see him. And here's the thing, what it said back in John 1 was that God came in human flesh to dwell amongst us. But then it goes on to say, And we, when he dwells among us, have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus says, I came from the Father, so you know the glory of the Father, and the glory of the Father is that he comes into where you are. He comes into the ordinary moments of your life, and he brings the full truth of the fact that you are, you've sinned, you've you've been alienated from him. And he addresses that truth by coming in human flesh in the manger. He comes down into our, yes, our lowly estate, the the estate that is at a middle income or lower middle income lifestyle, a state that's even below that. Not being this handsome, rugged individual, right, who's like, man, like, why do I believe Jesus? Well, he's on men's health, right? Do you see him, right? Like a giga chad, right? Like he didn't come in that way. Jesus came in a lowly state in order to come fully into our state and say this, I want to be with you. It's not about me out there. It's almost like we want to see Jesus on a talk show and we'd settle for that when we don't even know him. And we're looking for him in all these extraordinary realities. And what he's saying is my whole purpose is the father has sent his very heart, his very beloved son into the world and he's come right into your state. Listen, so often we just, we get these worldly, especially nowadays, gosh, we live in a world of CGI and everything's like, oh, it's amazing, right? And then spiritually, then we expect Jesus to just come in this extraordinary reality, but God brings the extraordinary in the very ordinary moments of life. Are you missing, is your, are you, are you not able to see God in your life because you only expect it to be out there in these big, amazing realities? And here's the thing, then you just begin thinking, if I never get there, I guess God wants nothing to do with me. Which leads to the third one. The warmth of God is polluted as the warmth of man, or lack thereof, you could say. Verses 32 through 36, he says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things, and it goes down 33. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will keep me, and you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said, well, Where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. See, the people are probably beginning to think that Jesus is just like any other man. That he's opportunistic. That this whole mission that he's about. It's one of those things where it's like, well, if you don't get on board, if it doesn't work here, I'll just move on. If you aren't the talented people, if you don't put yourself together, if, you, if you're weak, if you have a, a moment of doubt, if you have all that, then I'll just move on. Because often that's how the world works. 
And we begin to read that into Scripture. If you have something to add to me, then I'll be warm to you. Then I'll be present. It'd be like if, if all I did when Clara cries out to me, then I go, you put yourself together and then I'll come. And many of us have heard a voice like that that set the stage for how we think of God. And the warmth that God communicates to us in Scripture then is replaced by this cold indifference. And when we go through seasons of doubt, when we go through seasons of temptation, when we go through seasons of, of weakness, of sickness, we begin to believe maybe God's not present because God actually, his whole goal, his whole mission, he isn't warm unless I can get my act together. And so God is distant. Jesus, however, is saying, I'll return to the Father. And why? He's saying, when I return to the Father, it's so that I can dwell within you. I'm returning to the Father so I can bring a new reality and draw even closer that my warmth would come to you? Do you ever struggle to believe that God is present? Because oftentimes, here's the thing, we oftentimes assume when we're in the wilderness of life and temptations, that it's actually because somehow God's punishing us or God is just moving away from us. Here's something that's profound in all of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. There's that scene where Jesus is sent out into the wilderness and he's tempted. Do you know that in all three of those gospels, they specifically frame it right after Jesus is baptized, the father cries down from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then the very next verse, it says, after he hears the father's affirmation, the father's love for him, the father's delight in him, then the spirit led him out into the wilderness and he was tempted. Don't assume that because you are in a wilderness season of life that God has forgotten about you, God is indifferent, God is cold and distant. In fact, actually, oftentimes it is a place where God calls us and he leads us and or transform us and actually in that time to draw even nearer if we will seek him. It's a picture in the wilderness that Jesus gives us of walking with him, saying, you are my delight, I won't abandon you, I am with you. So how do we walk in that reality? Third, how to walk in God's unpolluted presence. Now, there was more than one ritual that would go on each of those seven days. So they'd walk around seven days. They would mark around once the altar. They would cry out, God save us. And on the seventh day, though, there, well, and during that, too, there was a, a, a water-pouring ritual that I haven't unpacked. So the priests and the people, as they gathered around, they would gather at the Pool of Siloam, which is actually going to come up here in a few chapters. And it was right there in the middle of the temple. And what would happen is as they were crying out, save us, save us, the priest would gold, uh, bend down with this golden kind of cup and he would, he would bring up this water and then he would pour out that water as the people began, continued to cry out, God, save us. And, and as they, they cried out, God, save us, then they would begin as he poured it out to cry out from Isaiah 12, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, the pool of Siloam was a unique collecting pool. It was fed by an aqueduct that it, was, it came from the only fresh sources of water in the area, from the springs. And so it would fill up with this water. And so the water there was referred to as living water because it wasn't stagnant pool water, you know, like a pond water or lake water, which is nasty, right? But instead, it's this fresh spring water. and It was the only place to get it. And so it would fill up with it. It wasn't polluted now, those were the first seven days of the festival. On the eighth day, though, they would march silently to the, 
to the altar, and they would march around seven times. And when they marched around to the seventh time, then at the end of the seventh, remember, they've been crying out for seven days, God, save us, God, save us, come to your people, be present, pour out, pour out this life, pour out this water. And then at that point, the priest then, this day they're not crying out, they just go silently, and those seven times around, and then he gets up and he prays, God, send the rain. Lord, send the rain on the harvest. Lord, send your life on the land. Send your life on your people. And it is precisely at that moment when the crowds are gathered around and they're waiting for the climax of the entire feast, when the priest will get up and say, here, Lord, bring down living water, that Jesus gets up and he does what he does in verse 37. Jesus gets up in verse 37 and says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood out and cried, cried out, stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So catch what Jesus is doing here. Just at that moment, the priest is like, All right, here comes the prayer. Jesus gets up and is like, <clears throat> Right? Out of me will flow the living water. You don't have to anymore. It's not something where it's just like you have to work and work and just cry out and hope that God will be there. But now I have brought a reality that now if you're one with me, I will bring that life. You want healing in your life. You want living water in your life. You're dry. You're parched. You're in the wilderness and you're just, everything's falling apart. Here's the thing. I will draw near. I will be that living water. God has sent the heavens down. They have rained down and they've rained down in me. Jesus is saying everything you've been looking for and crying out for, that presence you long for, that joy you long for, it has come in me. I promise we'll draw near. And this is the culmination, too, of all the prophecies that they've been reading. It comes from Joel 2, the end of that chapter I read earlier, when they cry out, where is our God? Where is our God? It culminates in verse 28 when it says, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall see dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. That's why Jesus says what he does in verse 39, saying you've been hearing this every single day. I will bring my spirit. The living water is my spirit. They're here at the Feast of Tabernacles. The question is, where is God? How will he be present with us? And here Jesus says, I will tabernacle with you, and I will do it through my spirit. That now, as believers, you used to have to travel geographically to go to a temple, to go to an earthly tabernacle on this level, in this reality that you can see. And you would go there, and you could stand outside the wall, just almost not quite breaking through, not quite there. He's near, but he's not with yet. And he's near, and he's right there, but we can't get to him. And what he says is now, I, by my sacrifice, will make you a new creation. I, by my sacrifice, will allow you into the holy place of the temple. I, by my sacrifice, bring you and make you one with me so I will be present with you. And I, by my spirit now, will come and dwell you, not in an earthly temple or in a, in a, in a temple somewhere geographically, but I will make you a temple. And I will dwell you with my spirit. I will take up residence within you. I am with you. So how do we walk in that reality? I'm going to call this spiritual drinking. This is where we're going to land. This is a practical way. Now, if you were at Salt Thursday night, you actually heard a version of this. So you get it again. That way you actually take it home. (laughs) Here's where I'm going to land this. Spiritual drinking. How do we every day just drink in this living water? Elsewhere in Scripture refers to as breathing, the Spirit being breathed out on us. How do we walk in that reality? Because just as our 
our souls, our bodies need water. Our souls need the living water of the Spirit of God. And what this is, is this is a form of what you would call contemplation. Contemplation is a word that it's not weird. We hear contemplation like, what, what you talking about, right? Contemplation comes from the word from con plus temple. It literally comes from, in the Old Testament, when the people of God wanted his presence, they would go with him in his temple. And when they were there, they would know they were in his presence. Now that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we can contemplate throughout our day, wherever we go, God's presence in his spirit. And this is how we would do this. First, we breathe in the word of God. We breathe in the character of God. We, throughout our day, we memorize scripture, we feed on God's word, we take one verse maybe in the morning and we just kind of chew on it throughout the day. Find some way throughout the day to constantly be breathing in the word of God, to breathe in the attributes of God, the story of God, how God has always been at work, how he's just and he's good. Not just study the Bible for like, you know, to put together all the pieces, but to hear God speak, to speak his promises. One of the I'll come back at the end of the service and I'll tell you about an opportunity for that coming up here at Anthem to grow in your ability to study God's word. Second, then we breathe out confession of sin. As we come into the presence of a holy God, we realize that we are not holy. And it's not good just to sweep it under the rug, but God has actually in truth and in his grace made a way. So as we become aware of God's holiness and his character, we then breathe out confession to God. We breathe out confession as we talked about, like with the men's event. You find other people in your life where you can breathe that out to, confess to them, and have them breathe into you then God's word. Because then it moves to the work of God. We breathe in the, the, the charis, the grace of God. I had to alliterate, I'm Baptist. But we breathe in the charis of God, the grace of God, as we encounter God in Jesus Christ. His promises are fulfilled in Christ. And so you, in, during the day, you breathe in the word of God, and then you breathe out, God, this is where I'm, I'm, I am distant from you, Lord, where I've turned from you. And then you breathe in the work of God, God, this is the grace you've given me in Christ. And then you breathe out consolation, the assurance. God, you've given me Christ. You've given me grace. You've made a way. There's nothing I could do that's beyond what you could atone for. And then we breathe in the warmth of God, breathe in the comfort. God, you've made me your child. God, you've made me your own. Lord, you are here. You are present. You are not distant. You came into the world. You went, came from heaven to earth in order to draw near, to make me your own. Why would I believe you're absent? And then we breathe out in that moment then a celebration to God. Thank you. Lord, you are here. Just this awareness that you made me your child, that whatever lies I may be believing, however I might be thinking, why I feel like you're distant, that, Lord, you are here. So in the midst of your day, this is a way to breathe or drink the living water, whatever imagery you want, to throughout the day, pause. And here's the thing, throughout the day when you're, it's so easy to go throughout our day just asking, where are you? Where are you, God? What he's inviting us to is to just pause, to contemplate his presence, to breathe, to drink of his living water. So as you journey through the week, your week, whatever the wilderness may bring, no matter how distant God may be, he is present drink deeply, and walk in his presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would... Lord, we ask that you would draw near to your people. Lord, we know in, in, in one way, we, we know you have drawn near. You've drawn near in Christ. Lord, you made us one with you. We're, we're, we're one with Christ, and so therefore, you're one with us. There's no distance there, yet at the same time, Lord, we can live as if and walk in our daily lives as if you were cold, indifferent, distant. 
polluted in these different ways from being able to sense your presence, not believing your work, not hearing your voice, believing you're off, moved on. And Lord, around this room right now, there are different things that we're facing, different realities that right now make it feel that you're distant. Lord, would you right now begin, Spirit, would you speak across this room? Would you resonate, as Romans says, Spirit, would you resonate with our spirit to make known to us that we are your children? That right now, whatever storms, thunder we hear in our lives, rumbling around us, moments of lightning and shock, Lord, in the midst of those, would you draw near? Would you speak? Would you comfort your people? Lord, we thank you that when we cry out, where are you, Lord? You say, I'm here. Emmanuel, God with us. To you be the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.